What's up, everybody? I hope you all are doing well today. It is March 22nd, Thursday, March 22nd, and this is Rafael Garcia back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I am waiting on my partner, Sean Humes, to join us. Let me get him in the show. He'll be joining us in a second, but we have quite a bit to talk about today. Um, probably the most interesting thing is this is a no fight week where we do not have a lot to preview. Maybe just a little bit to recap from last week's event where Alexander Volkov stopped Fabrikio Wardoom in the main event. Of UFC Fight Night, what was that 127? Hey, that's one. How you doing? Let me see if I can. Uh... Huh, why is it? Swan, yeah? Sorry, people are having a little bit of uh, technical difficulty here. Let's do this. Yes, we have... um, a little bit to recap from that show. We got some interesting news from this past week to talk about as well as of you know we're on Thursday, and we've uh, been hit with a couple of interesting news bites over the week that I certainly think deserve some conversation. So we'll be talking about that as well. And let me get him situated. Not sure what's going on here. Sorry about this, everyone. Um, let me look at the agenda again. Let me go ahead and get right on started. So sorry about this, everyone. So, yeah. First story we had to talk about is Sean. Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, man. Sorry about that. I'm not sure what yeah. quite occurred, but. Thank you for joining me today, man. How you doing? I'm great as always, man. How about yourself? Good. How was your week? Everything quiet? Uh, yeah, just busy. We're got a we're into summer basketball, and then one of my kids is trying to make state for a track. So we'll see how that goes. How are you into summer basketball when it's not even spring yet? They call it summer basketball. <laughs> so we have our first game next week, next Friday. We have our first game, so it's considered summer basketball, but it start it starts early. I think this season will be going into like almost the end of end of summer. I think. Man, all this damn snow on the ground on the East Coast. I'm not trying to hear anything about summer until I can get spring officially. Please, someone give me spring for real. Yeah, yeah, I I, I feel you, pain. I hear I heard how rough it's out over on that part of the country. Mm-hmm. So we got quite a bit to talk about here. Um, let's go ahead and get started with. The news that Kobe Covington and Rafael Dos Anjos are supposedly fighting for an interim title at UFC 224. Uh, it hasn't been officially announced by the organization, but it's supposed to be in the works. Everyone is um, talking about it, and there's a couple of different things to break down here from what this fight means for the card, what this fight means for Tyron Woodley and for both of these men. So, Shawan, let's start with um, RDA and Kobe Covington. From a just a fight standpoint, does this fight interest you? What do you see when you look at these two men? Well, I mean, it does interest me because 
you haven't seen Colby Covington, even though he faced a high caliber guy in Demaya, that was a guy who kind of lacked, who was older and lacked the physical ability to really test them. Like Maya was landing on the feet, but if Maya hit like RDA, the the strikes he landed might have turned the fight. Or when Maya attempts to take down, I know he's a better grappler, but he's not a better wrestler than RDA. Maybe he would have gotten been able to finish those takedowns if he had RDA's physicality, RDA's strength. So this would be the first time to see how Covington would handle a guy who he doesn't have a decided advantage over physically. Like a guy he can't, a guy by, based on paper, he shouldn't be able to bully RDA. So that that would actually, that's kind of an interesting fight from that perspective for Covington to see how tough he is, how he handles it when he can't bully somebody, how does he fare against a well-rounded, experienced opponent. We haven't seen that yet, so this will be the first time we get to see it against against a guy who has all the skills and the physical tools. For RDA, we haven't seen RDA against like a legitimate athletic wrestler, and a lot of the question people have is, what if Woodley takes him down? What if Woodley tries to wrestle him? Covington is not the athlete that Woodley is, but he's a good and effective and competent wrestler. So now we're going to see what RDA does when he doesn't have a clear advantage as far as taking the fight down, tying up and grappling exchanges on the feet, or um, having to work off his back. Not choosing to not choosing to work off his back, but having being forced in a position where he has to work off his back. So that it, it'll answer some very important questions for both fighters. Because as good as RDA has done, we haven't seen him. I mean, Robbie Lawler's a top guy, but we know Robbie Lawler's on the decline. We haven't seen him against a fresh, young, big, physical welterweight yet. And for Covington, we haven't seen him against a guy who's got real experience, real world-class experience, and real world-class skills and physical tools. So this is really going to answer a lot of questions about both fighters. And, you know, you said quite a bit there that I think is very interesting there. Um... What do you think about, like, how do you pair their striking against one another? We saw Damian Maya have some um, stronger points when him and Covington were on the feet. Compare that to what we've seen RDA be able to do uh, standing over the last few years and his uh, steady improvement to become one of the more aggressive and calculated strikers in the game. How do you see Covington being able to deal with that? I mean, in theory, based on what I've seen of him, Covington should, Covington's more of a willing striker and a, a guy who's willing to exchange, a guy who's willing to throw his hands, more than a guy who, in my opinion, is particularly technical or particularly disciplined in his strikes. From what I've seen in his in his striking, whether it's setting up takedowns or it's just extended striking exchanges, his defense is average at best. His offense is average at best. A lot of his success comes from his physicality and his willingness to try people on the feet. The biggest thing in mixed martial arts is a lot of guys are wrestlers, they are grapplers. A lot of them don't really have really sound, developed striking games. If you really think about it, a lot of guys, they pick up the offense, they kind of pick up some counters, but there's not a lot, not a lot of depth to their skill. Against RDA, RDA's really improved because he already had the Muay Thai. He has a very physical style, he works in the clinch. He's very good in countering. If you land a shot on him or you throw a shot and he blocks it, he fires right back. That's the, big, that's the biggest tool he has is the fact that he can counter and he counters so heavily and he counters so aggressively. Guys can't find their rhythm and guys can't back him up and guys can't throw their hands or move their hands for strikes without knowing something's coming back. And when you know that a guy's throwing hard and he comes right back at you, it makes you a little it makes your volume go down and it makes you a little hesitant because you know every time you touch him, he's coming back to touch you. And that psychologically breaks guys down. The biggest advantage, the biggest improvement he's had is his boxing's a lot better. His jab, his footwork, his defensive footwork, the fact the head, the punch, the punch and um, the head and body punch combinations are a little bit cleaner. He's a little bit deliberate. His defensive footwork's a little bit, a little bit better. Before, if you pressured him or backed him up or put some heat on him, he would just counter you and come forward and try to smother you, push you to the cage. Against Lawler, you saw at moments in the cage, he's he's fighting in center cage and he's out striking him. Even against Tariq Safadine, who isn't a, di a particularly disciplined striker, but he has a lot of variety, and he's very good at kicking game. He was able to shut that down, control him on the feet, get him down, work him over. So his striking's, his overall striking has improved, specifically in the area of his boxing. And what I saw against Covington against Maya, I don't, I don't know, I don't, that guy, he doesn't have a chance with RDA, except for the fact that he's gonna be willing to throw, and he'll push the pace on, he'll push the pace on him. But RDA is much more durable than Maya, 
He's a much more technical and willing, aggressive counterpuncher. And he's actually got a fairly well-rounded set of school skills as far as he can counter, he can lead, he can jab, he can leg kick, he can attack you in the clinch, he can fight off the back foot a little bit. He's really kind of opened up his striking since he's gone with Jason Perillo. So on the feet, it's outside of athleticism and attributes, it's not much of a competition at all, in my opinion. I think RDA is very capable of doing something similar to what Maya did. But since since RDA isn't the threat off his back that Maya's, Maya's taken as being, I think Covington's going to be more willing to collapse the pocket and look for those takedowns. I don't think he'll stand in extend, extend, extended standing exchanges with RDA. I, I don't think he can afford to as far as his chin or the damage accrued, and I, I don't think he can afford to as far as skills. I'm just not very impressed with what he, what he has on the feet. So when I heard about this fight, you know, I definitely believe that this was a, it's a good fight for both men because a win for either guy definitely puts them in position to be the number one contender for Woodley as he recovers from his shoulder injury. Yeah, many people are expecting him to come back uh, sometime July, maybe August. Uh, Schwan, you're rubbing up against something so I can kind of hear like a lot of noise on your end. But um, I just wanted to say, uh, so this seems to be the right type of fight for both of these guys. My concern is the addition of the interim title label because Woodley has been more than active in recent years. In fact, other, other than Demetrius Johnson, he's one, one of the organization's most active fighters. So I feel like it's a little bit disingenuous for them to add this interim uh, tag. I mean, if we look at Woodley's um, record, he fought twice in 2016, twice in 2017, which is definitely more than a lot of champions on their docket. Why couldn't they wait until he came back? And what is the point of them adding this interim title to this fight? I'm not, I'm, I just think they don't like him very much. I think he's played hardball and he's kind of taking a stance. He's pushed back a little bit. I don't think the company, the organization appreciates it. I don't think Dana White appreciates it. The, the one reason I am okay with the interim belt is because it gets more people paid. In boxing, they always say this. Because in boxing, it used to be like titles don't matter, belts don't matter. And if you're a certain name a fighter, like you have a certain name, McGregor, Mayweather, Canelo, um, I don't even know who else is super big in, in mixed martial arts who has that kind of weight behind their name. But if you have a name and you have a fan base, then not having a title doesn't matter. You can still demand top paydays. You can demand pay-per-view points. But if you're just a fighter who's a very good fighter but doesn't have that fan base, having a title increases your increase, increases the bottom line. If both got if Covington or RDA is an interim champ and Woodley's an interim champ, that means both guys are getting points off that pay-per-view because they're both champions. They so they both get points. So whoever's coming in, they're both both getting bigger paydays. And secondly, as good as Woodley's been and as active as he's been, people still don't like him and people still don't really pay, they don't come to see him fight. They really don't. They, he's been on some really big cards, which he's benefited from other people being on the cards. If it's a interim title fight, I know this interim title will be bogus against legitimate title. It makes the fight a little bit bigger. It makes it have a little bit more appeal. It has a little bit more spice to it. That's going to help selling. That's going to help the bottom line, which also will help Tyron Woodley get paid more. So while I, I, don't think the, I don't like the authenticity of it, I think it's disrespectful to him. I think it's kind of pointless. The fact of the matter is it will get the two guys fighting that night paid more money because they're both going to get points for pay-per-view and it adds a little bit more intrigue into the fight instead of it just being a normal contender fight. It's actually going to be a, a, a two people with ch two champion fight, even though it's not real. And that'll be add some more intrigue, and, and Woodley needs that. In fact, it'd be best for him if Covington wins. Well, actually, either way, if Covington wins, it's good for him because Covington knows how to sell a fight. If RDA is able to put a beating on Covington and submit him or knock him out, a lot of that positive energy is going to go to RDA, and it'll help fuel pay-per-view sales either way. So either way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to benefit Woodley. It's just not benefiting him in the way he wants, and they're not showing him the respect they show other champions. But financially, it helped every fighter involved in this, whoever wins, being involved in that, involved in that title match, they're going to benefit from it. So in that regard, I, I have to be okay with it because it's helping fighters get paid. But as far as like respecting Woodley's work ethic and how often he's defended the belt against what kind of guys he's defended the belt against, it's, 
it's as disrespectful as you can possibly be. There's not too much more disrespect you could give a player, a fighter, than to do what they've been done to Woodley right now. Yeah, I I totally agree with you there. I feel like this is a slight to him because they are not. While they are quick to make um, interim titles, I feel like they could have waited just a bit longer for this one to occur. Maybe they know something about Woodley's um, progression is, is going slower than they thought. Maybe it's something else. But I, I would understand if he feels slighted at this fight being made. Someone else who should also feel slighted is um, Amanda Nunez and Hakeo uh, and Raquel Payton, because they're scheduled to be the main event for UFC 224, and it's almost as if the UFC is putting some type of insurance in place in case if Nunez pulls out again. I mean, we know about the sinus issue she had back before um, her second fight with Shevchenko, so we're aware of that situation, but I feel like in a way, this shows that they also... Um, do not trust her still in that position. I don't think that they, that they ever will. Well, at this point, you start to, and I'm not, you have to think the fight with Pennington was going to be made before Pennington broke her leg. And I don't know how she broke her leg, but once again, injuries can happen. And at this point, the UFC is the biggest tr- trouble they've been having is that big fights fall out and they don't have any, they don't have any backup. So then you have fights, you have, you have whole events that either have really terrible world title fights or no title fights or, the biggest selling point on that card has disappeared because certain guys got injured. So I don't know if that's a matter of disrespect or if it's just smart matchmaking because can they really afford for it to be one title fight? And then one of either Nunez has a flare-up of her issue or Pennington gets injured, and now we we don't have a fight at all. You know, we the Cyborg just fought, so she's not going to fight again on the next card. And everybody else is, and everybody else is essentially taken. So, so what would you do if that fight falls through, you know? If this, considering how many injuries they have, I, it'd almost be irresponsible for them not to have some kind of backup. And, and to be quite fair, I, I don't really think either one of those fights are big sellers, but both of those fights are the better fights to make in the divisions. So you, you have to have something going. You, you have to have something going to, to help sell because they're not selling pay-per-views the way they used to. They're not getting the attention they used to. And they're not dominating the new the sports media like they used to when they have a UFC. There was a time when a UFC happened everything shut down and that that hasn't been the case for a while so they have to have a backup plan and they have to hope that people don't get hurt because uh their their pro their product's kind of on the rocks right now as far as the popularity and the money it's bringing in it's definitely a struggle situation for those who are there let me ask you this final question about this topic here covington rda who do you uh slot as a better opponent for the current champion uh, I honestly, I don't, I haven't seen Covington in tough enough. I really think RDA is the best guy, even though he just moved to the welterweight. The fact of the matter is for the past, what, two, three years, he's been fighting at an elite level. He's beaten mostly elite guys. He's only lost two elite guys. With Covington, I, I still think he's fairly one-dimensional. And while I think he could test Woodley in those grappling exchanges, Woodley's best tool is neutralizing what a guy does and exploiting the things he doesn't do against against. RDA, RDA can he can box a little bit, he can kickbox, he can do Muay Thai, he can wrestle a little bit, he can grapple. So it's going to be harder to neutralize him because even though he has things he's stronger in than others, the fact of the matter is he can do a little bit of everything. And he's a guy who applies a lot of pressure. He makes you fight. So Willie's not going to scare him off with his power. Willie's not going to be able to rein him in. He's going to have to deal with all five, all three ranges, all five disciplines on a, on, on a regular basis. He's going to have to really fight a hard two, five, however long it goes. He's going to have to fight hard, and he's going to have to be defensively responsible, and he's going to have to up his work rate to get to get RDA's respect. Covington, to me, is still fairly one-dimensional. He's not good enough on the feet to be a threat. He's not good enough to neutralize somebody on the feet who's trying to get to him. He's essentially like a wrestler and a grappler. So Woodley's specifically made to counter that and to neutralize that, defend the takedown, land big shots, move around the cage, back into the cage, force Covington to come in and counter him. So Covington on paper is the actual easier matchup because Covington has fewer ranges and fewer tools that he's mastered that he can threaten Woodley with. So if you only got one or two tools to, to threaten Woodley with, he'll take away one of them. So now you only got one. And now it's one-on-one and it's even, except Woodley's a world-class guy. 
who's very smart and very disciplined. And Covington, in my opinion, isn't very disciplined. He's smart, but he's not very disciplined. And he's not particularly adept at any, any particular range. So it's easier to shut him down than it is for to, to shut RDA down. That's why I think RDA would be the tougher matchup for the champion. I agree with you there. That's a, that's a fight that I hope that we get to see at some point in time, especially seeing how much RDA has grown since that um, Jeremy Stevens knockout. Everyone always kind of brings that up whenever talking about him. But, I mean, he's really – he not only has he turned a corner, he's crossed the street and drove to a new state and compared to being um, that guy back all those years ago. And talking about someone getting knocked out, we have another fight that was kind of announced that – Everyone was like, huh, when it came up. But Cub Swanson and Frankie Edgar are fighting again on April 21st. You know, um, Swanson's coming off of a victory where his last fight, um, no, excuse me, both of these guys are actually coming off of losses to the same man, Brian Ortega. He uh, submitted Cub Swanson and knocked out Frankie Edgar both this year, and now they're being paired off for an April 21st fight. My first reaction to this was, what the hell? I don't like the idea of Edgar taking another fight against another big hitter in six weeks when he was just viciously knocked out for the first time in his career. I understand that these guys want to jump back on it and get back on the horse to try to get their win back, but I question when they make these types of turnaround. Now, I understand that people are going, if Frankie wins, it'll be considered the best um decision he's made, it'll help him out across the board, but if he loses and he gets stopped again, there's got, there's got to be some questions raised. We just saw this occur with Michael Bisping and Kelvin Gastelum, where Bisping lost to GSP and like almost not even a month later takes a fight against Gastelum uh, and gets brutally knocked out. I'm hoping we're not looking at the, at the same type of situation with Edgar here and that this isn't a, I, I don't want to say ego situation, but this is close to it, where I think that we have to look at guys and look at them, look at this situation a little bit differently because we have to be concerned about the health of these guys making these short turnarounds. Yeah, I'd probably agree with you. Uh, my my biggest concern is he's starting to do he's doing the thing that Anthony Pettis did when when he started losing, and I've said this before. You've heard me say this when Anthony Pettis lost his title, there were holes in his game, there were flaws in his game. He had took an extreme beating. What I felt he needed to do was take some time off, recover, kind of address some things, get your get your mind back to- totally, get your health back totally, then address some of the technical and strategical holes you had so you could come back and you could fight and kind of work your way back into shape, work your way back into your rhythm, work your way back to the title fight. But Anthony Pettis, what he did, it was like, I'm trying to get back to the title ASAP. So right after RDA, he fought another high ring guy. After that, he fought another ring high guard because he was trying to jump the line. He was trying to get right back into contention as soon as he could. And as a result, he had a lot of miles put on him. And every time he lost, he moved further down the rankings. And more importantly, he was taking huge beatings in this fight. So he's having whatever elite athleticism and skill beating out, beating out of him because he's in these high ranking, tough fights against elite guys in the division. Frankie Edgar is trying to do the same thing. He knows he doesn't have a long, long time in this sport. Frankie Edgar knows that. He's not as quick as he used to be, which also affects some of the b- bad habits he has as far as his striking with the constant circling and diving in with volumes. It's kind of predictable. I said this before. He got knocked out by Ortega, so this isn't me just jumping on the bandwagon burying him. But he knows his chin isn't there. And it's not because his chin has totally failed him, but it's because he's been in a lot of wars. He's been in a lot of rounds of fights. He's been, been through a lot of abuse. So he knows he doesn't have two, three, four, five years left. He's trying to stay in contention and, and stay as close to the belt as possible, hoping that he can get a title fight in the next fight or two. That's the that's the only reason you take a fight like this this soon after because it'll keep you right in contention. Because uh, Swanson had was on a four what three four fight winning streak. He lost to Ortega. So if he can beat Swanson, then he's he's basically the next in line, or he'll be another step away from being in line. And he's since he's the bigger name with the bigger fan base than a Jeremy Stevens. Or, or anybody else out there, then worst case scenario, he has to fight Stevens again for a title fight. Best case scenario, they pick him over Stevens trying to maximize pay-per-views and having him fight uh, Max Holloway. But as you said, it's very concerning because he was just knocked out and it wasn't like he got dropped and the ref just stepped in. He was out. He was done. He wasn't able to defend himself. He was, he was totally helpless. 
Ortega could have done whatever else he wanted to and when when he put him down and you're not giving him very much time for his mind or his body to recover and you're having him go up against another creative, dynamic, athletic, versatile striker. You know, that's it seems like a recipe for disaster. The only thing I can think is Frank's team is saying, well, you've already beaten Cub. You can take him down. You know you can out-grapple him. You can hold your own enough on the feet where you can score your points, get him down, and just work him over and submit him, just like he did the first time. But the first time he was he was on a winning streak, the first time he wasn't coming off of a brutal knockout loss, like, what, a month and a half ago? When, by the time it comes around, it'll be like a month and a half or so. It, He's just trying to stay in contention. He's trying to get to a title as soon as he can. And I understand that. But as far as his health and ultimately his performance in that fight, coming back this quickly might might actually sabotage his chances of winning. I think this is Cub's best chance of beating him. I didn't think Cub could beat him the first time, but this time I think I think he's got a real clean shot to to get Frankie. If I'm him, I'm jump I jump on him right at ASAP, jump on him, hit him as hard as I can, see see how he handles it. Because you don't come back from a knockout like that. You don't come back in a month and a half, not if you're smart, but um you know, he he wants that title shot bad, and he knows he's coming to the end of his career, so he's willing to take these chances to get to get that title shot. Yeah, it's definitely a fight that kind of worries me because um, I just think that it's, it's not as uh, safe, and I, and I hate to use the word safe as a word here, but it's just not a, it's not a safe bet right now to be taking this fight on... Um, short notice and even if you do get a win here that doesn't put him back in the title hunt to me I, 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 it's, it's another win over Swanson another guy who just lost to the number one contender so he could still find himself two to three fights one to three fights outside of the title shot picture so I, I, I just don't think that it's a, it's a situation where he is getting the bang the most um, out of a, out of his buck for jumping back in there I'm wondering what his payday will be like if He's doing him a favor in, in that sense and getting something out of it, but there just doesn't seem a lot of a uh, huge payoff to take this fight on short notice. I think I think he feels his name value is gonna put him ahead of Steve. Like if he wins, he's already beaten Steven. so he thinks he, he th- thinks the fact that he has a win over Stevens will help, and the fact that he has more name value than Stevens will also help him. Plus, even Max Holloway said, "Me and Frankie have unfinished business," so it, it kind of it kind of sets up. A fight. So I, I'm in my mind. I'm believing he thinks he's a fighter two away, or somebody's told him he's a fighter two away if he wins it. That's the only reason he would take it. I can't imagine any other reason he would take that fight. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting reason to see why he would take this fight. Um, let's see what else I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the story about Anthony Joshua supposed to be fighting in the MMA. Um, what the hell is this about? Do fights like this or ideas like this interest you? Yes, Joshua is a great boxer. Boxing is an important component to mixed martial arts. But the way he and Floyd Mayweather are kind of talking about some components of MMA is just kind of like, really, we're going to do this. We're going to take up time to talk about the superfluous ideas of fights when this is what we really need in the sport right now we need to be making stars out of the guys and, and men and women who are here but no we're dedicating time to talk about anything joshua floyd mayweather and others trying to make some imaginary jump into the sport of, of mma what why do you think this is occurring and is this a conversation that excites you in any way shape or form well i don't first of all i don't think joshua is supposed to come in to do mma i think they want to get their boxing thing off the ground and 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 having him would be a huge it, it would be a huge selling point if they have the heavyweight champion of the world that makes it easier to negotiate with other fighters that gives them a, a position of power and then plus there's some MMA fighters who would love to be in a boxing fight with that person you know Stipe wanted to fight him before uh, so that would be a big thing to have their heavyweight champion facing the heavyweight champion of the world even if it's in a boxing match I don't know that he'd ever go into uh, mixed martial arts but I guess it's a possibility. But um, the main thing that comes out of it is, I know these guys are fighters, I know they're warriors, I'm not trying to downplay that at all, but the simple fact of the matter is everybody's in this for money. The same thing Stipe would accuse, you know, like, oh, well, they put Nganu in here and I feel disrespected because he's getting all this attention. Having Nganu come in and get hype and get attention and get props, you know, that helped you get paid. 
And if you fight, if he fights Anthony Joshua in a boxing match, he's going to get a lot of attention that he hasn't deserved. He hasn't earned as a boxer. He was a good Golden Gloves boxer. I'm not saying he can't box, but he hadn't earned it at a world-class level. So he's going to get a world-class boxing payday and a world-class opportunity based off of MMA accomplishments. So he will be benefiting from the same hype machine and the same opportunity. It'd actually be worse than Ngannou because Ngannou actually established himself in mixed martial arts. Stipe hasn't done enough of anything in the world of pro boxing for him to get a shot at Anthony Joshua, but he might because that would sell because it's the mixed martial arts guy coming over to face the boxing guy in his realm. And then if they do it in reverse, that would also be a big seller. The only thing about it is all these guys are trying to make money. They're not in it to make the sport better. I know they always talk about it's class and we need to be a real sport. We need to do this. We need to do that. But as soon as the opportunity comes for them to make some life-changing money, all these guys and their morals and the this guy deserves it and the, that guy deserves it, all that goes out the window. And once again, if Stipe fights him in boxing or mixed martial arts, it'll be another example of the morals and the rules and the class and the sportsmanship going out the window. These guys want to get paid. They don't care about the rest of these guys who do mixed martial arts. And nobody's, and everybody will complain about somebody getting a star treatment or somebody will get an opportunity they didn't deserve. But as soon as they get their chance to get paid, they are going to jump at it instantaneously. Conor McGregor did it. Stipe did it. When Floyd says he fight MMA, how many MMA fighters said they'd be, they, they love to be the one to welcome them in? The same guys who say, I won't fight Sage Northcutt because Sage isn't a real challenge want to fight a boxer who's never had an MMA fight in his life because that's a challenge. It's not a challenge, but you know you'll get paid huge money to fight Floyd. So you'll pass up legitimate contenders ahead of you. You'll pass up potential title contenders. You'll put your whole division on hold to go fight some meaningless fight that's meaningless in the, in the grand scheme of things. But then you'll complain when the, the organization doesn't treat your title reign or your ranking with the respect and dignity it should be, but you want to throw respect and dignity out the window as soon as that huge payday comes in. It's, it's, the same, it's the same kind of logic, but I can't complain about it because once again, it gets fighters paid. And we all know that fight, enough fighters get ripped off that if a fighter can get a big payday, I'm all for it. But it just bothers me when I hear that constant, it's about respect, it's about dignity, it's about believing in me. And now you're doing this, you know, you're so happy in your sport, but here you are crossing over. Why are you crossing over? For money. Because if they paid him $100,000 to fight Floyd or fight uh, Anthony, he wouldn't do it. But if they're going to play him $10 million or $20 million, yeah, he'll sign off for that. And that's nothing against him. That's against all the fighters. They're in, the, they're in it for the money just as much as the promoters are in it for the money. It's just that fans tend to forget that because the fighters are the ones in there throwing and taking punches. But the fact of the matter, this is a job to them, too. This is a profession to them too, and they act accordingly. Man, you said quite a bit there. And yeah, it is about getting these guys paid. Um, I think it is important to do what's necessary to put these guys in a better situation to be able to succeed financially. That is very true, I agree with you there. But does that trump the integrity of the sport? That is a question that I kind of have to ask as well there because I, well, I thought it always, does, though. It, it always does since day one. I mean, when, when Ken Shamrock came back from WWF to fight Tito, that was, that, that made a sham of the sport right there. He hadn't fought in years. He was past his prime. You have him fighting your light heavyweight champion in a title fight. He didn't have to, he, he just walks into a title fight. What sense does that make? What sense does that make at all? How do you have champions from one sport going to compete in another sport? How do you have champions in your sport getting paid more money to fight in a sport that they have limited experience in than they get paid in their sport where they're world champion? It, the integrity always goes, to, goes out the window when the money. The only people who complain is the fighters who aren't in that position. As soon as that fighter's in a position to get a payday, they don't have any complaints. They're like, oh, well, he's earned his spot. You know, he, he deserves to be here, and I'm here to welcome him, and blah, 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 blah. But if it wasn't them fighting in it, they'd say that it's a sham. It's a, it's a fake show. It's not a competitive fight. It, it just, they pick and choose when to enforce these morals and these rules about the sport. That's, that's where I get bothered, the inconsistency of it. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there, man. Some good, some very good uh, analysis there. And just one last thing. The people who bashed Connor, let's say Connor would have said, I want to fight Cub Swanson in boxing, or Floyd would have said that. You think, Con you think Cub would have turned it down? You think he'd be coming back to the UFC if he just made $100 million to fight Floyd Mayweather? He wouldn't be trying to rush back. None of the champions would. They'd all do the same thing. 
but they act but because they're not in that circle and they don't have that payday they act like they're better than that like oh well i wouldn't do that tyrone woodley i i wouldn't do that he should be a champion to defend his belt dude you keep on asking for money fight if you're so concerned about the honor and the sport just fight whoever's next take whatever you get paid do your job and work your way to being the greatest. But it's not just about being the greatest. It's about getting paid and being the biggest star. And you can't do that unless you're fighting someone who's got a, who's got a brand name and who can generate money. So that, that's my only problem. Don't just attack Connor. Let me see how let me see how T Wood is after he made a hundred million. Let me see how who uh, Max Holloway acts after he's made a hundred million. Let's see if he just walks back in to fight for two million dollars. I bet you, I bet you he doesn't. He, he can say that, but until I see that $100 million check he cashes, and then somebody tells him, go fight another tough guy in the world for $2 million, then I'll believe it. And $2 million is a stretch, because I know he doesn't get paid $2 million to fight. But then, then I'll believe it. But none of those guys are in that situation, so it's easy for them to say, well, Connor's running, and he, he's not a real warrior. He doesn't have the guts to do this. He's scared of me. No, he just got paid $100 million. He doesn't do anything he doesn't want to do now. He's just taking control of his career now, like all the fighters want to do. Okay, okay, I'm not going to argue with you there. Um, so, speaking of top names, I saw a Bleacher Report story um, that came out on Monday by, what was the guy's name? Um, uh, Jonathan Snowden, right? No, Snowden didn't write it. It was by oh, okay. um, Matthew Ryder. He wrote it. But uh, what it did was it listed the top 10 women in MMA of all time. So what you and I are going to do, we're going to go down this list to talk about each woman and whether or not you agree with their placement on the list. Are you ready to go? Yeah, go ahead. Number 10, we have Holly Holm. 11-4, 10-fight win streak, debuted in MMA on March 4th, 2011. What are your thoughts about this one? Uh, as far as the top 10, if she's at the end of it, I get it because the... She beat Rock, even though she beat Pennington a while ago. Pennington's uh, top three, top a top three ranked bantamweight. Marion Renault, who she also beat, is a top ten ranked heavy bantamweight, maybe top seven. And she had the biggest upset of all time, beating Ronda Rousey by KO. So if we're gonna have her on the list, having her at the very end makes some sense to me. The only reason it doesn't make some sense to me is the fact that every other elite level fighter she faced, she lost to. You know, I mean, like four of her losses have been to really good bantamweights. So it's it's kind of weird that you're putting her on the greatest of all time when she's only really been able to beat what three or four fighters of a world class level. That that's kind of weird to me. But I mean, if she's going to be on the list and tens 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 as high as I would give it to her. This is high as it will go. All right then. Yeah. And there are some names on this list that were pretty um, interesting to me. Like number nine, we have Tara La Rosa, who. 22 and 5. I'm not even sure. Is she still fighting? I think she's done. I'm not sure. She might be, but I think she's done. Alright, so we got Terry LaRosa at number 9. What are your thoughts about that? Given, given that she competed in multiple, I guess, generations of the sport, and she's she's got so many wins, and she's, she's at the time she was facing the best fighters available, I, I could see that. I mean, 22 and 5, there's still fighters right now who have champions who don't even have who don't even have 20 fights. So just on longevity and activity and the names on her resume, I, I, I would give that to her. I, I don't know that she's one of the greatest fighters. She's one of the better grapplers. And um, and like I said, just with her record alone, because, you know, back then the fights weren't as evenly matched as far as talent. But when you have like almost three times as many fights as, as most girls, even champions in divisions now, she stood the test of time. So just by longevity, I, I would say that puts her up there as well. Okay. But she isn't she wouldn't beat Holly Holm like well no, she's in a lower weight class, but she she's an actual legitimate mixed martial arts fighter. She's a little bit limited, but she's an actual has multiple skills and multiple disciplines. So to me that that, that puts her ahead of home as well, because home's really essentially a one note fighter. Okay. Alright. Number eight. Misha Tate. Yeah, I think she's way too too low on this on this on this top ten. I mean, I'm a fan of hers. But the fact of the matter is, like, she's been in through multiple mo multiple aspects of women's mixed martial arts. Like, she's competed across the board 
where a lot of the girls who were the top then no longer compete. She's competed through, she's a champion in two organizations. She won a strike force tournament. So she's won a tournament, which very few fighters, men or women who competed in the past four, three or four years could actually say she's won a title belt in two divisions in two organizations. She submitted Marlos Kunin, which is, which had, at that point had never happened. And Marlos Kunin's an all time great. And she submitted Holly Holm, which had never happened. And, and Holly Holm, in theory, is an all-time great. And a lot of the fighters she's beaten are one of the, some of the better fighters in Japan and America. So it's weird to me that she's that she's that low on the list. I would think she'd be closer to the top five at least, given given her level of opposition, winning in the two biggest organizations at the time in um, in in mixed martial arts. And she was the she was like a she's a pioneer. She's not only a pioneer, but she's actually a person who was world ranked up until the point she retired. She didn't retire when she was in the top 15 or top 25. When she retired, she was still a top 10 fighter. So it's weird to me that she's this this high on the list. I, I would think she'd be like around no no worse than five, in, in my opinion. So like I said, there's a couple of names that shocked me. And one of the first ones here is uh, Valentina Shevchenko. She comes in at number seven. This one shocked me because she's never been a champion. Yes, she has a hell of a um, run uh, in kickboxing, but she's the only person on this list that has never been a, a champion. Um, what are your thoughts about her coming in at number seven? Yeah, it, that's that's the best point I can make. I mean, you have her at number seven, and once again, you have a two-organization champ at number eight. You have a person who's beaten two all-time greats, finished them, and then you have Valentina Shinchenko, who really hasn't finished a world-class opponent ever. Well, you know, she finished Julia Pena, who's a uh, world-class in air quotes over here. So, but she's never really finished a world-class opponent of any level. She's never won a title. Um, and most of the girls she's beaten, in my opinion, just weren't really good, to be to be honest. So I don't, I don't think, I think she's way, I don't think she should be seven. If anything, she should be, I don't think she should be on the list, to be quite honest. She's one of the best strikers, but she's not one of the best wrestlers. She's not one of the best grapplers. And her best win in her entire career is probably her win over Holly Holm. And that's not nearly as impressive as you might think it is. Okay. Okay. Um, let me see what else we got here. Number six. This one, this one right here caught me off guard too, but I'm glad to see her name on, on the list. Marlos Conan. Um, I could see that because Mar Marlos, even though, I, once again, she, she was defeated by... Um, She's defeated by Misha, so it's kind of weird that she's a little bit higher. But Marlus has been in the fighting for a really long time. She's fought across the globe in multiple promotions. I think she's won championships in multiple promotions. And she's fought a two weight class. She was world ranked in two weight classes. So from that perspective, longevity, level of level of opposition, the fact that she, much like Misha Tate, she fought in two of the biggest organizations in the world. She fought in Strike Force. She fought in Bellator. She's won at 145. She's been a champion at 135. I think, was she the Invicta champion at 145, too? I believe so. I believe so. She was the winner in the biggest North American women's women's uh, women's, the women's organization. She won a belt. She was uh, competed in a Bellator. She won a belt in Strike Force, and she's faced a who's who. And up until the point she retired, she was still a top 10 ranked fighter. So even though she was finished by Misha Tate and not... And I might say that Misha might deserve to be ahead of her based off longevity, the name she's fought, and the fact that she's competed in two, in two, um, in two separate divisions and was world ranked in both. I think that would that would that would justify her position pretty well. I think. And I think the I, she was the, the first person to really put up a fight against Cyborg. I mean, it didn't yeah. work out both times, but she definitely hung in there. She definitely put in a, put up a fight. Uh, against Cyborg multiple times. I mean, she fought her twice, so that's definitely worth praise as well. Number five, Joanna and Jacek, Joanna champion. Yeah, that 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 would make sense. Once again, like, I hate to keep harping on the Misha Tate thing, but because she's to me, she's a little bit more accomplished. But given the fact that Joanna defended her, she was an active champion. She defeated the best people in her division. She defended her belt. I want to say what three, four times she beat Panay, she beat Gadelia, she beat Andrade, and beat Kovacavich. So she defended her belt four times. She was the first champion of that 
she was she defeated the pound for, who was at the time Carla Esparza was the pound for pound best girl at strawweight and she defeated her so she's beat at least four elite four elite opponents one of them she beat twice and she beat the girl who was the consensus number one in that division so it, it, even though she's only won one belt in one organization it's the best organization and she defeated the majority of the best fighters in the division so it's pretty hard to have her in the top five I would agree. I would agree with that. I mean, once again, just based on longevity and amount of organ amount of competitions and names on resume, like close to all all time great names, I put Misha Tate ahead of her. But if you just go by title defenses and being the and beating the best person in the division, you you can't argue with Joanna. I mean, it's it's hard to argue with her. She'd be the pound for pound best person in her division, and did it easy. Number four, Ronda Rousey. I mean, you have to put Ronda in there, considering the streak. I mean, at one point, she was being considered pound for pound for men and women. She changed. I mean, if you're going by greatness, she, and that's, once again, that's why I go back with me state. You, you're not just good at your sport, you change the sport. She changed the sport for women. She impacted the sport as far as her fame, her popularity, and created the opportunity for women to fight in the UFC, because if Ronda doesn't show up, I don't know that women ever get their opportunities to, um, fight in the UFC and part of that is some of the people she got to fight the home fight was big so home helped her out there the two Misha Tate fights were big because of Misha's brand in the UFC and in the mixed martial arts as a whole but Ronda essentially changed the sport she made being a female fighter a viable so we're going to talk about people we find it odd who aren't on because there's a couple people who I just find who are who are on this and I find it odd in itself of course of course man you, you know we are number oh, Three, Megumi Fuji. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, you can't even argue that. I mean, she should be higher. She should be no worse than number two, in my opinion. But the fact she's in the top three is fine with me. I mean, she competed all over. She's faced literally everybody. She's fought in almost every major, major organization that allowed women to fight. Just on, long, just on longevity alone, you, you have to put her in the, in the top ten fighters of all time. And that's not even counting the fact that who she beat and how she defeated them. That that's that's the that's the one person nobody can argue about. Everybody can have different takes on other fighters, but I don't think anybody can even argue Fuji at all. And I don't think they'll ever be able to argue her for a while. I think I think she's on that Mount Rushmore for the rest of for the rest of time until something big happens on the behalf of another fighter. I don't think you can argue her 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 position at all. Even though she should she should be higher. I will once again say I know who's next after her. She should be higher than her, in my opinion, but that's just me. Megumi Fuji didn't fight in the UFC, right? She didn't get the opportunity. Yeah, no, they, they never had it. She was never in that position to fight because they, they didn't have female fighters at that time. Okay, all right. So then number two, Amanda Nunez. I don't know, man. I just, I don't know. I, I knew this is a good fighter. She's a great athlete. I think she has the potential to be on this list. I know she's accomplishing things that like she beat Misha, she beat, uh, but I mean, she beat Misha and that's the biggest name she's beaten. I mean, she hasn't beaten anybody else who's, who's a real name in, in women's mixed martial arts. Like right now, even then, like Misha was considered one of the better fighters of all time at the time she won the belt and definitively the best fighter in the division at the time she won the belt. Um, Nunez. I mean, so the beating Misha means something, but she hasn't beaten anybody else, and she hasn't looking. She hasn't looked particularly impressive in her last defense. I mean, when she fought Valentina, that wasn't the kind of thing that, that puts a stamp on anything. That that was the second best fighter she's faced, and she looked okay against her. She looked she looked all right, you know. And um, even though she's beaten a lot of girls, the the fact of the matter, the girls she's beaten just aren't really all that impressive to me. She didn't win a belt in Strike Force. She won her belt in the UFC. I gave her props for that, but I don't think she's accomplished enough. I don't think her career's been long enough, and I don't think she's won in a fashion that puts her at number two. I, I just don't see it. I don't think she should be at number two, to be honest. Okay. All right. And number one, probably easiest to pick, Chris Cyborg. Yeah, you have to. She She's completely ruled her division. She's beaten a lot of name fighters. She's beaten every quality bantamweight who's moved up. She's beaten home. I mean, even beaten Chris Scott. Yeah, Yana Kuniskaya, she was a former Invicta champion. She beat Tanya Evinger, who, even though she moved up, was a former Invicta champion. Home was a former UFC champion. So even though she's been beating girls who are smaller than her, she's beaten 
the elite girls, they were all elite and they were all more than capable of competing at featherweight. They just couldn't compete with her at featherweight. She beat Marlis Kunin twice, which very few people can say. And she's been a champion in the UFC. She's been a champion in Strike Force. Um, I don't know. Was she a champion in Elite XC as well? Yeah, wasn't that the fight her and Gina Carano? Yeah. So she she's been a champion in Elite XC. She's been a champion in Strike Force. She's been a champion in UFC, and she's been a champion in Victor. All four of the biggest North American mixed martial arts um, mixed martial arts organizations. She's kind of changed the sport as far as what athletes are looked at, and she's she's the only one who makes featherweight viable because no other fi- no other featherweight is as dominant, nor has the fan base or the reputation that she has. So to that degree, she's changed the sport as well, and she's been she was the only girl who people thought was capable of beating Ronda Rousey. So yeah, her being a number one is, even though she doesn't have the level of opposition, that she's had she's had a few big wins, but her period of domination and the fact that she's beaten everybody who's made available to her and she's beaten them so decisively, basically cements her place, even though she hasn't really, I mean, there's nobody in Featherweight who's, who's a real competitive match for her as far as legitimate skills and experience. So she's just done the best with what she's had. She's like Demetrius Johnson. She's beaten a lot of people who aren't elite at her weight or who aren't truly elite, but she's done it in such a fashion where people just consider her to be the best of all time because of her dominance. Okay. All right. So that's the top 10. Those are the people who are on the list. Who is this list missing? Um, I know it sounds kind of weird, but shouldn't like uh, shouldn't Carla Sparza be on this? I mean, at one point she was the number one girl at her weight class. She was the Invicta champion, and she was the first UFC champion. And even though she's had some loss in the UFC, she's got a winning record in the UFC, and she's beaten some pretty highly ranked girls. She's beaten top 10 type fighters, and she's been a champion in two organizations, and she was the inaugural champion in the UFC. So does that just not really count for anything at all? I mean, does that not have any sort of any sort of weight or any merit it seems weird to me that that it doesn't i mean i know she went through the she's a tough champion she was a ufc champion and um she was invicta champion so i mean it's kind of weird that she doesn't get any sort of mention not even an honorable mention or something just based off her record and the quality of wins based on who was available for her to fight at that weight class who would you take off uh that's really that is real Maybe. I mean, to me, her and La Rosa would be would be close to a tie. Maybe. I I guess you can't take Nunes off because she's the current champion. But I mean, like either her La Rosa or her and Nunes. I know Nunes is more more accomplished, but Nunes. I know Nunes is more accomplished. I guess. But maybe La Rosa or, or Nunes. I think. Maybe, no, you know what? Valent Shevchenko. Shevchenko or La Rosa. I think I would take off. All right. So I have one to add there, there too. So since you said Carla Esparza, what about Jessica Aguilar? Because she was considered the number one pound for pound when that whole show was going on, and it was almost like a travesty that they didn't have her in that actual tournament too. Yeah, uh, you'd have to. You, yeah, you know what? You'd have to put her in because she she's a champion in another organization. Um, you know, I mean, she hasn't done great in the UFC, but the fact of the matter is, she was one time considered the very best in an entire weight class. So how do you have the person who would, who's pretty much been unstoppable at that level not at least be, if not on the list, an honorable mention? And that's her and her and Esparza were either one and one or one, one and one A or one and two, and yet neither one of them are on the list. The only thing I can go with is maybe she hasn't performed her best against the best competition, i.e. in the UFC. But outside of that, I don't, I don't see how you, how you, like I said, leave the two best people in the history of a division out off the list. Like, that shouldn't really be possible. I think a lot of this is because people who they've seen in the UFC and what they've seen them do against the best in the world, but they're discounting length of career, other winning championships in other organizations, and they're standing prior to them being in the UFC. Because Aguilar, by the time she got in the UFC, she was already kind of later in her career and on the decline. So I, I think that's important, too, that, that you point that out, because I, um, she's lost twice in the UFC. She fought once in 2015 against Claudia Gadelia. You know, she beats just about everybody, and she lost to Courtney Casey last year. But, I mean, Aguilar has one, two. She has two wins over Megumi Fuji. She has a win over Carla Esparza. She has, I mean, that should be enough right there. Yeah, I mean, you beat you beat an all-time great, and you beat the other, the, 
the other top ranked person in your division, and you were a champion in another organization. So I don't, I don't see how Valentina Shevchenko jumps over her as a result of that. It's it's just very odd to me. It's kind of like somebody saying, well, Jordan's not that good when you, all you saw was Jordan play with the Bulls. Well, you didn't see him at his best, and nobody's seen Aguilar, Aguilar at her best and her peak physically. So we're going off based off the declining, not as sharp, not as physically dominant or durable version. And if you look at her from that point, yeah, she doesn't look that impressive. But if you saw Michael Jordan play with the Wizards, he didn't look that impressive either. But if you saw Michael Jordan when he was the Bulls, you'd be like, who's this guy? So it's a matter of time. It's a matter of time, too. And that's why I think some of these people are getting a little bit ripped off because the UFC just put these divisions in. So these people are, a lot of these, a lot of fighters, a lot of fans aren't hardcore fans. So they have no idea that this person was fighting the best of the best for five, six, seven years before the UFC even gave them the opportunity to compete in front of their cameras for their, their promotion. So they're not getting the love or the respect they, they should be getting based off the accomplishments they've had. And Esparza and Aguilar not being on the uh, list, to me, is an example of that. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying either is necessarily a loss for the list, but I think there's a discussion that says one of them, at least one of the two, should be considered for it. You can't be the best person of your generation at that weight class, or at worst case scenario, maybe what, number two, number three? Because they were champions in that weight class. So how do you not at least have them in the discussion? And what's interesting there, I'm wondering if, you know, she did lose to, um, talking about Jessica Aguilar, she did lose to Angela Magania, so maybe that just kind of disqualifies every, everything else. Well, I mean, GSP is considered one of the best top 10 fighters, and he got knocked out by Matt Serra in less than a round. There you go. There you go. Who else? Is there anyone else missing off this list? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think I actually think it's a pretty good list. I, like I said, my biggest issue is I think I think Misha Tate and Megumi Fuji should be listed a little bit higher. I don't even as much, and I'm a huge Valentina fan. She's got great potential, but the fact of the matter is she hasn't she hasn't done anything stand out. She hasn't done anything better than what Aguilar's done. She's beat ranked fighters before. So is Aguilar. She hasn't done anything better than Esparza's done. She's beat ranked fighters. Esparza's done the same thing. I mean, if you're gonna put Shevchenko in there. Why don't we just put Claudia Gadelia in there? Claudia Gadelia is a better fighter than, you know, Claudia Gadelia is a more accomplished fighter than Shevchenko if you want to go by quality of wins and um, being competitive in, in, in title fights. I mean, if you're going to put Shevchenko in, you might as well put Gadelia in. She's, in my opinion, they're, they're not the same fighter, but they've had comparable accomplishments. And I guess, uh, so, um... Let's see, is there anything else I'm going to talk about this week? I think that's really about it, man. I'm, um, what are you working on this week? And let everybody know where they can find your work, as usual. Uh, I've already turned in the piece for the, uh, the fight on UFC 223 with uh, Herrick versus um, Kovacavich. It's the do's and don'ts, the things that Herrick needs to do and don't and not do to, to beat Carolina Kovacavich. I'm actually working, I'm going to be working on some other articles. I think I'm going to, I did something for Combat Press talking about the five things that Anthony Pettis did to defeat himself. And I'm going to be having an article coming out for UFC 223 for Artem Lobov versus Alex Caceres. And I'm going to start working on a Courtney Casey article for her fight with uh, Michelle Watterson, among other things. Right. And you can find me on uh, Twitter. Black Jordan Breen, um, like I said, I'm always, every once in a while I'll come out on tweet and I'll be like, hey, anybody got anything they want to talk about in mixed martial arts? And we'll talk about coaching, we'll talk about fighter analysis, and we'll talk about, you want to talk about an article I've gone over, you want to argue with me? I'll, I'll discuss it to whatever depth and whatever extent you want to discuss it with, because, you know, I love talking to sport, boxing too, and I love talking to people who want to get a better perspective or who have a different perspective from me, who can intelligently explain it and defend it. And uh, not trying to toot my own horn because I'm no better than anybody else. But the difference between me and a lot of guys who do an an analyst type work is a one, I actively train in grappling and striking. So their perspective is a little bit different because they don't. Not all of them do that. And two, I work with fighters. Like I, I work with I work with fighters, unranked fighters, regional fighters, ranked fighters in Bellator, Invicta, and UFC. So when I'm giving my opinion or my perspective or my analysis on them, it's the same kind of analysis I would give. I would give to a fighter or their camp. In fact, some of the stuff I've said on Twitter before has gotten me jobs with fighters in their camps. So it's like, you're not getting just like some guy who's going over film and just, oh, well, this is some general stuff I noticed. 
when I'm breaking down fighters, even if it's on Twitter, I'm breaking it down like I have a client who says, I need you to break this person down for me. How do I beat them? What do they need? To, what, or my fighter, my fighter needs to improve. How do I need to get them better? And that's what and I'll tell them. And I'll speak very bluntly because I speak very bluntly to camps. I speak very bluntly to fighters. And it's not just fighters you never heard of. Top five, top three, ranked in multiple weight classes and multiple organizations. That's what I'm talking about. So if you want to have that level of discussion anytime you want, you can DM me, you can tweet at me, and we can have that discussion, and I'll give you my perspective. And I'm not saying it's better than yours, but I'm just saying people who you respect, who have these fighters in these positions, they respect my opinion for a reason. So I'm, I'll give you mine. I'll gladly listen to yours. And, I just, and we'll just talk about it. Have it out on Twitter. There you go. That's always how we lay it down here. And um, as usual, I'm working on multiple pieces across grappling, football, wrestling, and um, MMA. I just did a piece on the situation with um, Brad Scott not getting paid at UFC uh, Fight Night 127. Yeah, I read that article. That was was a damn shame, dude. No, he was crying. He was in tears talking about how he's financially struggling. And he just got to stop doing this. That's really like the end all be all of this situation here. But just remember, just remember, he's willing to pay Anthony Joshua five hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. But he ain't paying. He pay, he ain't paying the sport that got him in this position. He won't pay the fighter that win and show money. He won't give him twenty twenty k. He won't give him thirty k. Reebok won't pay their money either. I'm like, you keep saying you're a professional that's sport, but you don't run it like a professional sport. But that's the thing, though. They they pay some guys. And don't pay others. I meant for us to talk about this a while back, but I'm not sure if you saw, but they paid Tim Means his show and win money for that controversial loss that he had a few months ago. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I talked to... Yeah, I, I, I knew that was coming way before that happened. But <laughs> how many guys have lost bad decisions this year or last year and they didn't do that for? Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, they lost bad decisions. Guys came in out of weight. Guys took brutal knockouts, and they and they took fights on last second to save a card, and they didn't get nothing. They got their show money, but they didn't get their win money. They they're doing. They think they're doing favors for the UFC, and the UFC said, "Nah, you're just doing your job. Take what we'll give you." It, it's really ridiculous the inconsistency about it, and that's why we've always said, "Y'all need to treat this like a business," because you think you're doing them a favor. The UFC says, "No, you're not doing me a favor. You're doing your job, which is to fight." You're not getting a you're not getting a special opportunity because you take this fight. You're not getting a special opportunity if you get knocked out and you're out of commission for six months because of this fight. You're not getting your win money just because you saved a card. You're getting what we give you. You should be happy for the opportunity. And these guys stay jumping and taking these short notice fights against these opponents who can't make weight and doing all this stuff. And all they're doing is is shortchanging themselves and then and then crying about it after the fact. His issue is a little bit different because he didn't even have the opportunity. But, I mean, it's a cold game, and these guys need to really start thinking about what's going to do the best for themselves and their families and not just keep thinking UFC. I want to fight the best. Fighting the best may not pay your bills. It may not take care of your kids. It may not take care of your wife. So you have to ask yourself, do you want to fight the best or do you want to make the best money? And if you got a family, you don't even have a choice in that decision. No offense. I know you want to be the best, but I got, I got kids. I got people to take care of. If I switch between working the job I want or the job that'll take care of them, you don't even have to ask which one I'm doing. There's not a question. There's not a question there, man. And we don't usually get the break of news here, but it looks like Stephen Thompson has supposedly accepted a fight against Darren Till as the main event of UFC Liverpool. I'm seeing that across multiple channels in the last half hour, man. What are your thoughts on that? If it's true. Yeah, it's a tough fight. I mean, Thompson, he's very, he's, I don't think he's elusive as he used to be. The thing is, Darren Till is a very good striker, and he's huge. He comes in like, he looks like a middleweight, if not a light heavyweight when he comes there. He's really big, he's really durable, he sets a very high pace, and he's a very physical fighter. I'm not saying Thompson can't catch him, I'm not saying Thompson can't outwork him, but he's not going to react to the shots that Thompson lands the way that most guys do like Masvidal and, and uh, Weight Drain, Hendricks and all them, he's not going to be bullying Till like he did those guys. And Thompson doesn't have a grappling game or a wrestling game to fall back on to create space that he's not able to get Till's respect early. If he can't get his respect early, Till's going to walk him down and, and beat him within an inch of his life. And, and he does, he's not going to have a grappling 
or wrestling advantage to break that pressure or to back him off. He's going to have to really exchange with this dude. So, I mean, it's a good fight. It's a good fight. It's one Till to lose. It's one Thompson to lose. But it's a really good fight. It's probably the, the second best fight they can make in division right now. Yeah, I definitely want to um, see that fight. I'm not seeing it confirmed anywhere else right now. But... I'm surprised Thompson would take it. But, you know. Especially after all what his dad was saying. But, I mean, you know, you, you, you throw enough money at people and they'll take the fight. I'll take it. Yeah, well, I, I, I hope I hope he's I hope he's getting compensated because he beats Till. People expect he, he's supposed to be Till. He's considered a top three, top four guy. He's supposed to be Till. Till's the one who doesn't have anything to lose. If Till puts on a good fight, he doesn't lose any ranking. If Till beats him, he goes way up. If he loses, if he looks bad against Till, he ain't getting a title shot anytime soon. And if he gets beat by Till, he's all the way at the back of the line, especially if he gets knocked out. So I'm not saying I'm not saying he shouldn't have faith in himself. I'm not saying he can't win it, but it's it's a fight that benefits Darren Till a hell of a lot more than it benefits Stephen Thompson at this point. I mean, I, I, at this point, I'll just sign you up as my corner, and we can go over to Liverpool on the UFC's dime, and I'll take that L and get about five five yeah. fingers. I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. it's not bad. It's not bad money. Not bad money at all. But um. All right, guys, I'm going to go ahead and close out, man. We uh, Thank you for joining me on this show. So uh, let's uh, keep the flow going, and we'll be back next week to talk about all things MMA. we got some big fights coming up, and I'm kind of excited about them. I know you are too. Yes, sir. You take it easy, man. All right, man. You're not going to, but I'm going to tell you take it easy anyway. Ha, you know how that goes. All right. Have a good one. You too.